Christmas season is upon us and I hope that you'll take the chorus of that last song to heart that, thank you, that the incarnation was personal, that Christ came with you in mind. It wasn't symbolic. It's not a story meant to encourage us. He came with a definite task with each of us in mind, individually, personally. You know, we can become so distracted by our culture's celebration of Christmas that we can miss the reality of God made human so that he could die in our place. Today we begin a new year-long series called The Life of Jesus. I urge you to get a book. Now would all of you give me a Christmas present? Who would be willing to give me a Christmas present? Here's my present. Get a book and make an attempt to grow this year. That's men and women. Let's don't pass this opportunity, okay? So I'm asking you as pastors, say, well, I didn't know we were gonna have to be, they're encouraged to grow in this church. (laughs) Yes, you're gonna be encouraged to grow and you can't do it just by coming on Sunday. So buy a book, if you don't have the money, I I heard David throw my name out, but charge it to him. It's a wonderful book. One of the best resources of its kind I've ever seen. It's a recent modern translation, the Holman Christian Standard. And you know, if we're going to pursue a relationship with Jesus, I thought what better way than to study the entire life of Jesus in one year. So buy a book. You can write in it, highlight it, write questions in it, mark it up. Unfortunately, you can't get a spiral bound one like mine, but I I need a bigger one because mine will fall apart by the end of the year. But you can buy one, wear it out, and buy another one. So let me urge you, and bring someone along with you. Not in a scolding way, but we all know someone who's just stuck. Bring them along with you gently. Buy a book, do the readings, join a group, and bring a friend to participate. The Christmas portion of this year-long series is the part that deals with Jesus' birth and his childhood. Readings 1 through 19 in the book. Each reading has a number. And I'm calling the Christmas portion Christmas relics. In other words, I'm focusing on the inanimate objects that are mentioned in the Christmas story. See, we believe that everything included in the scripture is inspired by God. Now, the theological word is we believe in plenary inspiration, which is the whole of Scripture. We also believe in verbal inspiration, which means down to the very word. Now, of course, the Scripture was not written in English. It was written in Greek for the New Testament, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but a little Akkadian as well, a a local dialect similar to Hebrew. But we believe that not only the whole of the scripture and the themes and the subjects were inspired, but down to the very words were inspired. You can read 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.20-21 to develop a biblical view of inspiration. But because the Holy Spirit actually spoke to and through the men that recorded the scripture for us, we believe everything matters. Therefore, the items that are mentioned 
in this incarnation story were put in there deliberately. So my pursuit is to track what these items mean spiritually, specifically, practically for us. Today's message is entitled Incense and a Tablet. And it focuses on the experience of a priest named Zechariah and his wife named Elizabeth. Now the setting is about 5 BC. God has not communicated directly to his people for over four centuries. The last prophet who spoke, who knows his name? Malachi. Malachi spoke in about 430 BC. He announced the coming of the Messiah. And that closed the scripture, what we call the canon, C-A-N-O-N. That was the last time Jesus addressed his, God addressed his people for over four centuries. Now during these period, this period of silence, Jews had returned from captivity in Babylon back to Palestine. But they returned to oppression by Persians. The Persians had conquered the area. After the Persians came the Greeks. After the Greeks came the Egyptians, succeeded by the Syrians. Now the Jews recaptured Jerusalem in about 165 BC, but they continued to battle with the Syrians until about 63 BC, the Romans conquered the land. And the Romans are ruling at the time of our story. So these Jews have been oppressed, enslaved, and they've been suffering for centuries, oppressed by many different nations. And so they long for a promised deliverer, a Messiah, to set them free from this oppression. So open your books. We're going to be using these books. Y'all wave your books at me if you've already bought them. All right, what do I have to do to get the rest of you to have a book? They'll sell them today. So bring it with you because we're going to use this book as our text. And we begin at Luke chapter 1, verse 5, page 7. It's in reading number 3, about a third of the way down. In the days of King Herod of Judea, now King Herod was not a Jew. You know what nationality he was? He was Idumean, which means he was a descendant of Esau. So see, although the Davidic kings came through the line of Jacob, Herod was through the line of Esau. So you say, well, then he wasn't a rightful king. That's the point. He actually had been given this position by his father, whose name was Antipater, under the authority of the Roman Caesar. So the Jews consider him not a true king. And that's another reason they resented him so much. Now he converted to Judaism, as did his father, but he wasn't a true Jew. He didn't belong on the throne. So in that period, there was a priest of Abijah's division. There were 24 divisions of priests. They served twice a year. Two weeks a year, except 
in these high holy festivals when all the divisions would serve. And this priest's name was Zechariah. Zechariah means Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal name. And so if you, if you um, paraphrase it, it is God remembers or Yahweh has remembered. And his wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth, which again means God is my vow or God is my oath or Yahweh is my vow or oath. Now at this time, there's a lot of corruption in the priesthood. A lot of these positions had been purchased from the king. Not all these priests were descended from Aaron. Some of them positions were given as political favors. So the people resented a lot of their own priests because they weren't descended from the line of who? Aaron, who was Moses' brother. So every rightful priest had to be a descendant of Aaron. And many of these were not. Many of them were given as spoils of, of doing a favor for the Roman government. But this couple was righteous. They were both descended from Aaron's line. Both were righteous in God's sight. Both because of their heritage, but also their behavior. Living without blame according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. In other words, they obeyed the law of God diligently. Now, despite their obedience, it did not mean that they didn't experience trouble, disappointment, or suffering. Because look in verse 7. But they had no children... Because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were well along in years. So it appeared hopeless. They had never been able to have a child. And now they're too old to have a child. To remind you of anyone else in the scripture. In first century Palestine. People would whisper about or criticize or even ridicule publicly childless couples because they asserted that God had placed some kind of curse or punishment on this couple because of some unknown sin, unknown by the community, but known to those people. So, so God was at odds with them and disallowed this child to be born in the family. Now we're going to examine, so, so because of that, there was a lot of shame and uh, false shame, of course. False guilt, of, of course. But, but they, would, they would feel so badly about not being able to conceive, which carries its own emotional um, sorrow. But then it was compounded with com criticism in the community. So we're going to examine this story using two physical items that are mentioned. Incense and a tablet. To discover what we can learn from these Advent artifacts. Burning incense in the temple first revealed obedience to the law. Verse 8. When his division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God. It happened that he was chosen by lot. Which means it was, it was cast like a dice. Or a die. According to the custom of the priesthood. To enter the sanctuary of the Lord. And burn incense. 
at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Now, incense was offered twice a day in the holy place. There were two areas within the temple. There was the most holy place or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. But then in the holy place was the the table of showbread, but also this altar of incense. And so the priest would work in this area just outside of the holy of holies. And they would offer incense at 9 a.m. in the morning before the morning sacrifice. And then at 3 p.m. in the afternoon after the evening sacrifice. Now because there were so many priests, this was quite an honor to be allowed to go into the temple. And to have this important role to actually to, to clean the altar, to place new fresh incense and to fire it up, to tend it. And it usually would happen only once in a priest's life, if that. Now these two were righteous, as I said. They were righteous because they had diligently obeyed the law of God. But this obedience was not the same as a personal, intimate relationship with God. They knew about God, of course. They'd been taught. They they had become conversant with all the scriptural stories and the rules and the regulations and the law of Moses. But they weren't personally familiar with him by obeying the law. In fact, to call yourself close to God in personal relationship with him would be considered disrespectful, even blasphemous, worthy of punishment in that culture. But how many of us are similar? We've spent our whole lives going to church. When I've taken surveys, about half this church fits that category. About half the church spent their lives going to church from childhood. I did. You know a lot about a lot of the Bible stories. You know a lot of what the Bible teaches. You you probably try to obey the teachings. Perhaps in this culture's expression of faith, you have have prayed a sinner's prayer. You've been baptized even. You've done everything that we're told causes a relationship with God to occur. But you know you lack an intimate, personal, experiential relationship with God. You know the Bible. You can recite the stories. You know what the Bible teaches and may even try to obey it. But you've never encountered the person of Jesus. And you know, perhaps pursuing a relationship with God by obedience, by diligence, by following biblical rules and and scriptural teaching, all those are good. But perhaps it has reduced spiritual reality in your life as it did for Zechariah. We're at Luke 1 verse 11. So he's offering incense. The people are outside praying and an angel of the Lord appeared to him. 
standing to the right of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome. Other words are seized or gripped with fear. Anybody here ever seen an angel? Nobody will laugh at you. I'm serious. There are some in the church that have, that have encountered angels. And I was going to ask you, what was your experience like? What was your reaction or response? Zechariah was a good priest. He was likely advanced in age. Who knows? 50, 60, 80, 90 even And he'd been pursuing this priesthood diligently. Remember, he was a righteous man. And dutifully for decades. And Old Testament priest's duties include serving in the temple. Some of it would be straightening up, cleaning up, you know, providing the materials that needed to be in there. Also teaching the law of God to the people. But also praying for God's guidance for those same Jewish people. So, so look at this. All of this man's functions for decades focused on an eternal, spiritual, supernatural being. Yet when he encountered a spiritual being, he was terrified. Alarmed. Shocked. I wonder, had Zechariah's familiarity with supernatural functions, he was in the temple, just beyond the curtain in the Holy of Holies was where the glory of God touched earth. Had had been so close to God, so much around the things of God, the, the God being a point of conversation, had it diminished his awareness that he was actually serving, speaking, and listening to the God of Israel who had sent angels to his people dozens of times. Somehow, despite all his serving, teaching, and praying, he didn't expect a messenger from God to actually appear to him. What about you? Have you routinely practiced religion? I don't mean, I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative. You, sincerely, you, you have attended church, you have given your money, you probably served somewhere, and you did it regularly. But have you lost the experience of an encounter with the real and living God? Verse 13. What do you expect is really what I'm asking. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. What prayer? Was he still praying for a child? Was he praying for the nation of Israel? We don't know. 
But the angel said, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. John means God or Yahweh has been gracious. Or you can, you can summarize it and say God is gracious. God shows favor. And there will be joy and delight for you but many, I think he means Israel, will rejoice at his birth. God showed favor to the couple by giving Elizabeth a child in her old age. But God would also grace or favor Israel with that very special child. And then the angel described the special child whose name was John. At verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will never drink wine or beer. So that leaves most of you out. <laughs> this is a Nazarite vow, or it's similar to. A Nazarite vow was, was someone denied themselves, abstained from alcohol. They also didn't cut their hair. They also didn't touch a dead body. To consecrate themselves to God, but it was for a limited period of time. However, John abstained from alcohol for his entire life. So his commitment was, was different and much, much more significant than theirs. Now look at this. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Now in those days, the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come and would enable someone with a gift or ability to do some kind of ministry. He, he gifted the artisans who crafted the implements for the tabernacle, for example. But the Spirit wouldn't remain. But with John, who we call the Baptist, the Spirit of God filled him in his mother's womb. You know what that means? It means he was regenerated, saved, born again before he ever saw the light of day. Well, how could that happen? He never went to a revival. He never went to summer camp. He never heard it preached. Because salvation's a work of God, not a work of man. And God filled this child with his spirit while still within his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him. That him is capitalized. What does that mean? Who is him? Jesus, the Messiah. They know him as Messiah here in this culture. I mean, at this instance. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous and to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Remember, he preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins, to prepare them, to make straight the way of the Lord coming. And he fulfilled Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. See, the Jews expected from this passage in Malachi, which I told you was the closing statement by the prophet who had spoke four centuries earlier, 
they believed that when the Messiah came, he would be preceded by the prophet Elijah. But they thought the prophet Elijah was really going to appear. In fact, Jews, even in, pa- in Passover, I understand even today, leave an empty seat to be occupied by Elijah, who would be the pre-runner, the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, after, then Gabriel identified this baby, not only with Elijah as the forerunner of the Messiah, but he also made this startling prediction. And when he said all this about this baby that would be born, Zechariah revealed his faith. Look at 18. How can I know this? Now that translation is, is, a, is a little, it's a little more subtle than I think it ought to be. I think it really ought to be, how can I be sure of this? Because the context is, give me another sign. What you're telling me is so far-fetched, I need some more assurance this can really happen. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. Because I'm an old man. And my wife, she is really old too. (laughs) Who's Zechariah talking to? Don't miss this. He is dialoguing with an angel who's told him he would have a miraculous conception and he's going, I need a sign. (laughs) Sounds like some of you, doesn't it? Instead of focusing on the appearance of this angel and remembering the power and the faithfulness of God shown in many ways. See, this same priest, he had been teaching about Abraham and Sarah who had the miraculous child when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah beyond 90. He knew the story. He told the story. He taught the lessons and forgot them when he had to apply the truth to him. When it came time for it to be about him and his life and his wife, where did he look? What did he look at? Speak up. He looked at himself. You don't serve God in your own strength. That's the whole point. He looked at himself. He looked over there at his wife. He said, this can't happen. I need a sign. So he asked for more assurance. He asked for another sign from God. And he got one. Probably not the one he wanted. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, here's your sign. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. A sign from God. Shut up. Well, can I pray that sign for my husband? 
Look at what the footnote says here. And this, the footnotes in this book are wonderful. And you see where it's bolded means there's a, there's a footnote of commentary. And it says, Zechariah, for silent and unable to speak, Zechariah wanted some evidence of the angel's authority and of the truth of his message. The sign he received was that he would be unable to speak until the day that the promise of a child was fulfilled. And this sign was also a penalty for his unbelief. Zechariah would have nine months of enforced silence to reflect on his lack of spiritual perception and the wonder of God's providence and power. God shut any of you up? Kept you at home without a job? Some physical illness that doesn't let you stir around? Perhaps he wants you to reflect on all of his blessings instead of just focusing on what it is you want. This priest of God did not believe the very things that he knew and taught when it affected his life individually and personally. You see what I'm saying? When it mattered to him, all the things he said suddenly were questionable. As a result, he lost his ability to speak. I think he also lost his ability to hear. The Greek word is kophos, and it can mean either being mute or deaf. And from the context, I think both. I think he lost both. Did you know that a lack of faith always bears consequence in your life? If God's given you a promise and you've disbelieved it, there will be a consequence. There will be some sign given to you. Well, I can still speak. Yeah, but you can't speak words of faith. But I can still hear, but you can't hear the truth in the way that changes your life. You see, our doubt, our disobedience, our reluctance, our resistance, our hesitation closes our mouths and stuffs our ears. Luke 1, 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did not come out, he could not, when he did come out, he could not speak to them. And then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. See, they couldn't just rush in there. You had, to, you had to be authorized to enter these holy areas that were designated in the temple. Only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. He kept making signs to them and remained speechless. And when the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. Now, there wasn't a law of Moses, a Jewish law that required a woman to hide herself away for months. Perhaps 
she just wants to be sure she's not going to lose this child. Remember, she had probably been ridiculed or criticized or at least whispered about. The scripture says she hadn't conceived. Maybe it doesn't mean she never conceived at all, but she may have never been able to retain a child. So it may be that this five months was just her hesitation. You said, well, well why, didn't the, why didn't the angel take away her ability to speak? Because she didn't talk to him. She spoke to her husband. And she said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Well, what effect did this gracious miracle have on this priest and his wife? Particularly Zechariah, the priest. I think that the tablet shows us. So we'll see that writing on a wooden tablet first reflected personal faith. We're going to go to page 11. In reading 6. Now the time for Elizabeth to give birth was completed. And she bore a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard what the Lord had shown her. Heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy. And they rejoiced with her. And when they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day. Now they came as witnesses. They were relatives also celebrating. But they would be witnesses to the importance of the covenant sign. The cutting of the flesh that was the promise between God and his people. Genesis 17, Genesis 21, Leviticus 12. But they went and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Remember, which means God is gracious. Elizabeth hadn't forgotten the personal work of God's grace in giving her this son. She was carrying a gift of grace. She was reminded of it every day. And she was committed to obey Gabriel's instruction because she experienced the promise from God. So she emphatically declared his name is John. But her friends and family members would have no part of that. They objected. And so they said to her, but none of your relatives has that name. Now look what's happening here. They know the Lord's blessed her. But they are unimpressed at this point. See, this is just another child being born. So they want to go by the same cultural um, habit of naming the child after his father or his grandfather. More commonly, grandfather. So they are emphasizing tradition in naming the child. And they're minimizing her experiential faith. They knew God did something. But it didn't change them. It didn't even alter their approach to her. That ever happened to you? Somebody says, oh yeah, I know you're a Christian now. I know you go to church. I know you go to that. I know that. But it doesn't affect their expectation of you at all. In fact, when you were born again, did anybody tell you you just needed to calm down now? Anybody have that experience? I had grown up, you know, going to church. My mother's a Christian. She's 87 years old now, not in good health, but um, 
She took us to church every Sunday, Sunday morning, you know, Sunday school, church, training union in the evening, church again, Wednesday night prayer meeting. I mean, I was in the church all the time. And I knew all the stories. And then I was born again as a senior in college. A senior in college who wasn't going to church, wasn't pursuing God, and wasn't living in a way that was pursuing God. And God did something to me and in me. And it altered my identity. Now I'm still in college. And I'm still living with a bunch of fraternity brothers. And suddenly my life, my behavior, my attitudes changed. And they wanted no part of it. And they wanted me to calm down and, okay, okay, we, we understand this church thing. We understand this Jesus thing. Now, come on back with us. You ever experienced that? If you haven't, I would say, did you change? Did you change? Verse 62. So they motioned to his father. See, this is why I think he was deaf as well. They wouldn't have motioned, they would have asked. So I think he couldn't speak or hear. They motioned to his father to find out what he wanted the baby to be called. They just thought she just lost her mind. Now let's just get back and and behave in a culturally appropriate way. This culture would love to push our faith into conventional boxes. They'd love to get you to conform to the cultural expectation of churchgoers. Don't accept it. Be sold out, wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. These neighbors and these relatives thought that the father would be more reasonable. He'd be more conventional. And so, look what he did. He asked, which I think that's not a good translation because he can't speak. He probably motioned for a writing tablet. A writing tablet was a small wooden board, probably about the size of my notebook. I have a bigger one than you do because I take notes and stuff in this one. And the wooden board would be covered with wax. And then the person would use a stylus or some sharp object to write words in the wax on the board. And that's what he was given, a tablet. And he wrote on this tablet, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Have you noticed that your obedience is amazing amazing to other people? They cannot believe you would deny yourself and do what God wanted instead of what you wanted. Instead of what the culture thought was best. Instead of what would let you fit in better. Instead of what would get you the promotion and make you more popular. And when you stand with conviction, especially if it's outside of the ordinary, they will be amazed. Who are you amazing? How are you living? See, they're linked, aren't they? Zechariah had always been a faithful servant of God. 
But now he had experienced God personally, individually, deeply. And he was irrevocably changed. He wouldn't get over it. You know what I'm talking about? You don't get over it. And what he was saying here, he was actually declaring, the boy's already been named. He isn't saying, I want his name to be John. He's saying, his name is John. Because God gave it to him. Are people amazed by you? By you living with conviction. In the face of opposition sometimes. Writing on a wooden tablet also resulted in restoration. Verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed. And he began to speak praising God. He hasn't spoken for nine months. I think he hasn't heard for nine months. Has God closed you up? Is it so you can hear from him and be prepared to speak for him? Why has God shut you up? Has he given you direction that you haven't obeyed? Have you responded to him in mistrust or disobedience? And then you wondered why you can't hear anything from him. I'll tell you this. When you stop doubting, when you start trusting, God will act. Verse 65. Fear came upon all those who lived around them. And all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. Judea. And all who heard them took them to heart saying, what then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. And the hand means the presence, the power, the guidance of God. See, the, the, God hasn't intersected these people, interacted with these people for four centuries they grew accustomed to this rote religious behavior. And they were shocked when God really showed up and did something. What about you? Are you shocked when God shows up? Or are you skeptical that he really, truly does? Because you've done religion, you've gone to church, you've done this, you've given a little, you've served a little, you've done all. You can do all that humanly. Well-intentioned, sincere, not spiritual. See the difference when the hand of God, you know when the hand of God touched you? And when God does something extraordinary in you, Something that can't be easily explained or, or simply dismissed. People will notice. 
You cannot be that changed and it be hidden. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, which means he was, this was revealed to him by God and he declared it. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. See, he understood this, that, that the Messiah, the Redeemer is coming after 400 years of hearing nothing from God. The Savior is being announced. The Messiah would come, but he'd be a Messiah who redeem, which means pay a price for the freedom of his people. I don't know how much of that he understands at this point, but he certainly understands redemption is going to happen. And then down to 76. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. That's Malachi 3.1. To give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Remember, he, he would preach repentance for forgiveness. Because of our God's merciful compassion by which the dawn from on high will visit us. To shine on those who live in darkness. That's the darkness of sin, but it's also just the darkness of ignorance. That I don't really truly know the real living God. And the shadow of death. See, for those of us that know God, death is a shadow. We pass through it. It falls on us and we move from life into life. But if you don't know Christ, you move from life into death, which is permanent separation from God. And to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's peace with God through redemption. And when you experience peace with God, I'm not talking about cognitive understanding. I'm talking about personal experience. When you experience God, it produces peace with other people. And you realize those resentments and grudges, and all, what was that about? And it results in peace within yourself. Because you know what? The shame, the guilt, the regret... It's gone. It's gone. The child grew up and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So where are you today? Are you in the wilderness? John lived there for a while. I've seen where the area that he lived in, the desert, where the Essenes lived. They believed John the Baptist. That's where he was near the Dead Sea. And he was in preparation for a great task. Maybe you're in the wilderness. But if, you're, if you belong to God, your wilderness time is a preparation for something else. It's not only punishment. It's preparation. And perhaps you're awaiting restoration. Obey what God's told you. 
Do what he said. I believe he'll free your tongue. So you can praise his name and speak his words and they'll be amazed. Counselors will be here at the front and if you say, you know, I don't know what Perry's talking about. They'll be here to pray with you, to talk with you. If you're struggling emotionally, physically, they'll anoint you with oil and pray for you as well. We believe God heals. He heals by his decision, but he heals by faith and we depend on him. So let me urge you, remember I ask you for a Christmas present. My present is that you buy a book and that you commit to following this year that we as a church could draw closer to Christ and impact this community. And get someone to come along with you, okay? Bring someone along with you. They need to know about Christ. You say, come with me. Walk this journey with me for one year. Is a year too much to give to change your entire life? Father, we thank you for your word. Help us, God. Free our tongues that we could speak. That we would praise your name and speak your words. Amen. Thank you for coming.